Smart Council is a joint production of Multnomah University, Alternative Behavioral Therapy, and New Pattern Counseling. Joshua Moore is a counselor at Alternative Behavioral Therapy in Vancouver, Washington, who specializes in neurofeedback and trauma. Reese Basimio is a counselor at New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon, who specializes in addictions, sexuality, gender, and spirituality. Thanks for listening and for joining the conversation. Welcome to Smart Council, the family in crisis. Smart Council provides perspectives and resources on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma for providers and students. I'm Reese Basimio. I'm Joshua Moore. And we are in the house with Dan Bates. What's up? How's it going? What's up, bros? Counseling bros. Thera bros. <laughs> Counseling bros. Counseling dudes. Thera bros. Thera dudes. That should be your next website. Thera bros. Thera bros. Thera I'll bet then for the women too. We need... Thera's that's sisters? going to get... Sister? Awkward. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> thank you, Reese. Mr. Bates, thank you for joining us in the studio today. Or it's not really a studio, but someday we'll have a real podcast in a real studio. But uh, Dan, do tell us a little bit about who you are and what corner of the counseling world is yours and what do you do? Well, I'm a licensed mental health counselor and I practice in Camas, Washington. Uh, I live in Vancouver and I'm, I'm at Lacamas Counseling with a number of other therapists. And my specialties are family therapy, uh, pastoral counseling, parenting issues, so in addition to doing private practice for the last seven years, I did functional family therapy in the Clark County Juvenile Court. So that gave me a really, uh, really great introduction to families and crises of domestic abuse and violence, drug use, uh, drug really, or uh, criminal justice related issues, a number of stuff. So uh, yeah, that's kind of I kind of made a niche out of that just because wow. I was exposed to it. That's quite a niche. What's your favorite sort of family, if that is a thing? Favorite sort of family? Uh, if they laugh at my jokes, <laughs> that's that's critical. I don't. Yeah, yeah. I don't. Everything else is is like secondary. If if they can enjoy my humor, I know I can like so, c- from a psychodynamic perspective. Like I hear you saying. If they connect with me. If it's about me. <laughs> I'm the central focus oh, okay. of them. <laughs> right. At least it should be. They should be, you know, focused on me. That's mm-hmm. not themselves or their problems. It's about me. <laughs> I'm sensing sarcasm. <laughs> well, but, but I, so I would do in-home services. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, you do have to be kind of a performer. Yeah. And there's a bit of theater to it. So it's like I would get in their house and like my inner performance artists would come alive and Mm. I would just like the most charming, funny, energetic, interested type of me would, would come out just to engage families because those are families in the system. So they are associating me with the system. Mm, And so there's already a resistance or a bias against me. And so I'm having to work to ally myself with them, not because I'm here because you're court mandated, but because I'm genuinely, oh, this is a Russian nesting doll in your mantle. That's so fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And and then it's just off to the races. That was one of your early experiences in counseling? That was, yeah. And I kind of relate to that too, even like thinking about my first job in mental health and how that really shaped me. Yeah. And there's like parts of my clinical practice that are, that seem hardwired because they've been there the longest. Yes. You know? Same. (laughs) Yep. Everybody agrees. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I remember my first session and it took me months to track this kid down. And then I finally got the session scheduled. I show up at their apartment. 
I'm like all, you know, ready to counsel. And then I sit down, I pull out my paper and pad and my pen. And I've got my button down shirt and my khakis. And, and uh, the kid says, I, I don't want to talk to you. Ooh. And I said, oh, why? And I'm like, I'm all excited to counsel. And he says, you look like a counselor. Oh, and so, ouch. I mean, from that day forward, I, I tossed the pad and the pen. Yeah. I, you know, took off the, uh, not in front of them, but I took off the button down shirt yeah. for a more casual clothing. And from then on, it became anything but counseling. It, it, you know, it wasn't about counseling. It was about just connecting with them as a person. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, subtly weaving in with my Jedi mind tricks counseling, mm -hmm. yep. uh, which is all about functional family therapy. And that's, that's kind of my jam. So yeah. that's, that's really kind of carried into me, even though I, I'm, you know, I want to be ethically and professionally within those confines. But when I work with clients, it's more about the relationship and connecting with them on different levels than just, yeah. you know, that seems so true about families anyway, like being in a family system, it, both makes you be really aware of the rule book and also how to throw away the rule book. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I mean, I'm thinking about just having my own family, you know, much less working with someone else's and envisioning the scenario of walking into someone else's house into their crisis and having yep. to like really fast, just make a quick connection, a quick trusting connection, which oh, yeah. would be really difficult to do under the best of circumstances. Yep. So, yep. Cause you, you do have to be very fast on your feet, very quick on your feet and then be able to roll with a number of punches mm -hmm. coming at you, uh, even just physical safety things or uh, just people, you're not sure who's all in the house and if there's weapons and drug use and, you know, showing up and a kid just drank a 40 or, you know, I've, mm -hmm. I've, I've had all sorts of things or, uh, you know, having to get the police involved after a session or during a session. Um, so yeah, you've, you've got to, you've got to be aware of all that and be thinking about your, your goals as a therapist, uh, in terms of what you're doing with them, creating an alliance and then working towards, you know, reducing their presenting problems and then building up pr protective factors, which was all part of FFT. For sure. What originally drew you to family counseling and, or what, what draws you to it now? What do you love about it? I wanted nothing to do with family therapy. <laughs> I feel like nothing I've heard that a lot. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I, I got into counseling yep. saying, that's the one thing I don't want to do. Yep. I will do individuals and I'll talk about depression and anxiety and, and, and nothing to do with family and nothing to do with relationships. And then the, the gig I get is FFT in the court system and I just get thrown into, into the, the mix immediately. And so, um, that was very challenging for me because it, 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 you know, kicked up a lot of my own stuff that I wanted to avoid and it forced me to deal with it. So in a way, I mean, the, the premise of the book is my own experience that individual crisis for me working with families and then having to deal with my own issues as a result of, working with these with these people created an opportunity for me to for yeah, growth absolutely yeah speaking of book what book is that oh reese <laughs> <laughs> i'm so glad you asked uh well i wrote a book called family crisis guidebook let me reference the title so i don't mess it up practical steps to work through difficult situations uh and and essentially you know we just described the premise the 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 idea of the book is 
if you and your family members are in a relational mental health or substance abuse crisis, what could you do to be successful in that situation, um, given provided expert counsel from someone who's worked with hundreds of families? So essentially, the book is what I would do with you uh, if I were your family therapist, mm -hmm. um, but you're getting it in paperback form. That's really neat. And you have kindly brought a copy and I'm looking at it on the chair and it's this nice little smooth, it's smooth. bright yellow friendly, it's glossy. thin, <laughs> small book. It could could fit in a pocket. So it's like a yeah. you know, pocket sized emergency guidebook, yeah. which seems really handy because I mean, I, f I feel like a lot of families, parents, you know, get flustered really easily. And, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, every parent sometimes thinks they're the worst parent in the world. Very few actually are. But we have these moments of what do I do? Unlikely. What do I, <laughs> so ha having having a reference point seems good, and yes. I feel like there's there's a lot of voices screaming, "Be a parent like this, be a parent like that, be a parent like that." Um, but having just like a quick reference seems like a really great idea. Yeah. Well, and it's not just for parents because I've I've written a book for parents. Uh, that's that's another book of mine when parenting backfires. Uh, but this is more for the family. So it's for, I mean, think if you're the kids, if you're the parents, if you're the step parent, if you're the boyfriend, if you're grandparents, extended family, um, this is going to address the entirety of the system. Um, and, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll, part of the reason why I wrote it is because I've worked with so many families who don't access services until things are at a crisis point. So these are longstanding patterns of behavior or longstanding relational patterns that have developed over time and then reached a point of, you know, all hell is breaking loose. That's a problem. And so if, if people are going to access content to help them, it's going to usually be online and it's going to be, you know, something really accessible, something really uh, easy, low level difficulty, like a podcast or like a book, paperback book or a YouTube video. You know, my, my, my thought is, is reach them where they are. Don't, don't say, okay, you got to come pay me money and have insurance and see me at my office and, you know, be dressed and bathed and have eaten hopefully, and then come and work on your issues. It's oh, like, yeah. no, you can be in your PJs and get on Google and find me and then start the work then and there. Sometime I'd love to go on a collective rant about accessibility issues, but I, I love that you mentioned but that. But that's my idea. For sure. I, I want to bring the mental health world to the broader public versus keeping it within, you know, our, our curtain, you know, Oz behind the curtain. It's like, let's pull back the curtain and take the benefits, the collective wisdom of the mental health field and take it to the people where they are. That's a really important shift, I think, away from the original woo mysterious Father Freud sitting out of sight, you know, behind the chair, like super mysterious, you know, counselor magician. Um, yeah. But but really having a high degree of transparency in what we do, how we do it, why we do it. Like, yeah. Like I sometimes tongue in cheek reference, you know, my counselor's bag of tricks, but but in functionality, like there should be nothing secret about what I'm doing or how I'm doing it or why I'm doing it, and giving the client more information only empowers them. And, you know, I, cause I don't need to be maintaining my personal power necessarily in a session or in a practice. Cause it's, it shouldn't be about that. Right. Yeah. And, and that's a tricky balance to, to strike. Cause I, I'm all for demystifying the mental health field and empowering the client as much as possible in the process, which means arming them with knowledge and sharing with them 
what they need to do, but partly why and what you are doing. Uh, but sometimes the balance I think I, I strike with that is being too non-directive versus being directive. Sometimes the client needs you to be directive and they don't need you demystifying things and explaining the process. They just need you to give them the the help. And so they, they need you to be more directive. So I'm, I, I'm neither non-directive or directive. I, I try to determine it based on the client. I have my own preferences and skills. Like I like shifting to almost one down, which is how uh, FFT would describe it. You're in a one down position and you've made the, the client the expert and they're the scientists running the experiments and you're the guide on the side. But sometimes clients also need you to kind of step up and be the more directive one, which is, which is fine because I'll have those clients show up on my couch and they just, they're looking at me like, okay, let's, let's do the session. So what, what, what do we do? You know what I mean? And then you, then you do have to take the reins and go with it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, for sure. That was a tangent. Cause this is a podcast where we, we talk do about like tangents and sort of what's the podcast equivalent of client centered guesting anyway, but, but you're talking about that, that flexibility and adaptability in individual sessions and in, in a family setting and those seem really valuable character traits. And so counseling students out there pay attention take note uh that's a characteristic to cultivate in yourself is the capacity to to flex and adapt and have a good amount of fluidity while still having a cohesive sense of self and when you figure out how to do that let me know and i will come buy you coffee yes and you have if you have too much fluidity i would suggest using the bathroom or or seeing a medical professional because because that could be that could be a problem, you know. You maybe you don't want to be too fluid, right? You want to retain some fluid. I mean, aren't you seventy? Are we seventy percent water? I mean, yes. Yeah, at least. Or, or as the good meme says, essentially cucumbers with anxiety. <laughs> oh, okay, that's good. Oh no, that's good. <laughs> cucumbers that's, that's, a, with that's an interesting description of a person. Wow. <laughs> it's a meme. It's authentic. That's oh, okay. If it's a meme and it's on the internet, then it's absolutely I should get back truth. on Facebook. This is weird. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I have a couple questions about families in crisis. So how does one define crisis for a family? Or are there specific benchmarks, characteristics, features that would qualify a crisis versus non-crisis? Or is it more of a binary or is it more of a spectrum? What do you think? I mean, it, it, it's certainly, you know, based on the family's perception. So they're the ones defining it as a crisis. Because there, there are times when, in my perspective, the family's in crisis and they're like, this is just our norm, right? And they definitely need help. Or And then there's other times when, you know, the family's like, freaking out. Ah, ah, and it's like, this is nothing. You know, I just worked with some other folks who are dealing with way heavier stuff. So, you know, it, it's, it's partly dependent on the, the family's perception, but typically it's when the levels of blame and negativity have reached a, a really high point and families are either making the mistake of blaming a, an individual uh, or blaming an event for their problem. You know, this event happened and that's why we have this or so-and-so did X and that's why we're in the situation we're in now Uh, versus saying, uh, you know, and this is where the book would help you and where if you were working with me, I I would get very curious when you start telling me about what, what Johnny did or what happened two months ago and 
dig a little deeper and and more often than not you would see a pattern that had been unfolding for months or years mm-hmm. uh, a relational pattern that had been unfolding for months or years and so that's that's the thing <laughs> that is the real thing that's the cause the pattern is the thing the pattern is the thing uh and more or less the the problem person or the event is really just exposing the true nature of the the you know the thing that's that's underlying everything Ooh, i love how you're putting that and right now i'm thinking about a couple you know teenagers that i'm working with who are sent there by their parents you know the teenagers themselves don't think they have so many problems and the right away the the problem i think i'm noticing because because i'm newer to working with teens too is that i think it's just like the parents and the teens don't communicate super well yeah but but this idea of the the problem the literal problem child or the the scapegoat you know victim martyr they they highlight patterns that have been right. existing for a long time. Yeah. And that's one thing I would, I, I definitely picked up from FFT. It's, it's in other, uh, counseling models for sure. And other theoretical understandings of people and, and the counseling process, but the, the idea is called reframing. Um, and this was from FFT. And so it, it, it would be essentially, you know, uh, Johnny runs away from home. Um, and so, you know, you dig a little deeper, you ask questions, you probe, you prod, and then you come to understand, well, Johnny actually thinks he's the problem. He thinks he's the burden of his family. And so he tries to run away so as to protect the family from his burdensomeness, from his problems that he brings to everyone. And so then you start seeing this huge, crazy, deep, long-standing pattern unfold where there is this shift of blame to Johnny when some other things aren't going well. And then Johnny feels that burden. And instead of giving the middle finger to everyone, he, he says, Oh, you know, I want to be helpful to my family. I want to be protective of them. So if I'm the problem, I'll remove the problem so my family can be better. And then you've just, you know, just in that one statement, you've radically shifted the family's consciousness around the problem. That is fascinating, and I'm, I'm I'm visualizing this through the lens of Cartman's triangle, and, and in that illustration you just pointed out, I could see where the the family might view Johnny as the the perpetrator, the offender, whereas he might see himself as the guardian protector, and and that would be a, a big difference in perspective worth well, discussing. It, yeah, it it highlights a potential undiscovered strength of Johnny. He's protective of family. Oh wow, that's fascinating, and then it shows maybe the heartfelt burden he feels because family is struggling with something. And too often the cases, you know, the finger goes to Johnny, but then it's like, well, it's these other things, you know, it's, it's the dying grandma, it's the job loss of dad, it's mom's alcoholism, it's the sister's drug use or self-harm behaviors. And it's, and then it's like, you know, then, then you're, then you're off to the races. Once you start having that conversation it's fun. It's exciting. It gets my juices going because it's like, oh, wow, this is amazing. And you see the blame and negativity drop off dramatically. And then people start having vulnerable disclosures, re, you know, reviewing the family history, telling the family story. Um, and there's a inviting nature to it where everybody starts collaborating. And it's it's a beautiful thing to unfold to see unfold and then change, you know, then you can speak to change rather quickly. That's another exciting thing about families is the, 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 the pace of change can be rapid. 
um, it's kind of high risk, high reward. It can go bad and it can go south real quick. You know, you can definitely become enemy number one. And I've been enemy <laughs> number one of a number of families, right? Because I'm talking about these deeper, longstanding issues. And it's like, no, no, it's Johnny. Stop talking about me. Stop talking about my husband or, or the sister or what happened two years ago. No, no, no. It's Johnny. Johnny's the problem. Stop talking about us. Um, I've had that happen a number of times. And so then I become enemy number one. But then if the family can accept, so this is where, you know, if you're winsome and if you build a good relationship and you can be charming or funny or sell a good story and you, you sell the family on this idea that it's not the event, it's not Johnny, uh, it's this longstanding problematic behavior that's been unfolding for a long time that involves everyone. Typically, you know, in some some cases like domestic violence and abuse, it's not always the case. But in the majority of the time, usually everybody gets involved. That's how systems work. Then you can see change happen real fast. Well, there's a there's a reality you're talking about where I think a, a myth or a misconception we counselors might have going into the office is that we're going to be a, a supporter, a cheerleader, a champion, and you know, a comforter. Uh, which we will be those things, and those are all extremely vital. But there is a vital, a, a another vital role we take, which is antagonist. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking of that role in, in in addictions counseling for sure. When you call somebody on all their uh, misbehaviors and and all the patterns and all their denial, and yeah. you you can't really survive in that field unless you can do that. And you know, in other cases too, like at some point you got to push back on the client a little bit. Um, because, oh, it's very subversive. Yeah. It's very subversive. Yeah. Because you're looking at the the norm, you're looking at the system as is, and you're saying, this sucks. This has got to be different. And and I'm going to charmingly, delightfully upend your system that you derive comfort and soothing from, and I'm just going to throw it in the air and toss it up. It's a salad, and here comes my tongs. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to mix the salad all up. So basically, hapak, if any Hebrew students or Bible study method students are out there, catch the Jonah reference, uh, and overturning that can be, can feel destructive, but is ultimately for their long good, their long-term good. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. I mean, think of the ministry of Jesus. He was very subversive. And so there's, I mean, I'm thinking of Jesus's presence in the room with the family, and it's not always a nice Mr. Rogers niceness. Mm-hmm. It's subversive. It's a little wild. Um, for for good reason though with within the confines of a purpose sub you know subvert the system for a purpose so that it can be better because so far the system maybe it's got this veneer of safety or soothing or comfort but it's actually sick it's toxic and it's not helping anyone we've got to you know upend it and then in its place phoenix rising from the ashes something new and better comes Mm mm-hmm so then there's like this redemptive element to it as well. For sure. So uh, backtracking just a little bit. So you mentioned FFT a couple of times. And for us acronym haters, uh, what does that stand for? Functional Family Therapy. Aha. Yep. Developed by psychologist Jim Alexander. And uh, I, do, I do love FFT. And I, do, I am a big fan. It sounds pretty amazing. It's a great model. Pretty dynamic, yeah. Uh, I'm wondering too for the... St- student or the 
for the student interested in FFT or in working with families or for the established practitioner interested in, in growing that way, what are some particular theories, models, tools as, um, that are helpful to learn about in learning this work? Well, I mean, you have to you have to understand family systems and have an interest in relationships and relational dynamics. Mm-hmm. Uh, too often the case, the world of psychology and the world of mental health is very limited to the individual. Yeah. Um, and I think that comes at a detriment to our clients because we are relational beings. Well, I, think, I think people out there can relate and then we kind of grasp that, you know, it's like, well, we work with this person yeah. But there's a lot of external influences, namely their system. Yes. And and you can say, well, I can't change your system, but I can change you. Well, sometimes we find out we can. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Sometimes we find out we can. It's like, well, what if your what if your wife was in here with you? You know, or what if what if they were here? You know, you start to wonder, you know. Right. And eventually you are you are engaging with the system yeah. to some degree. Well, when I'm working with clients, I mean it, it's it's <laughs> It's not within 10 minutes or a session that we start talking about family of origin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, or with individuals, you know, like internal family systems, which then also relates to to couples. So, I mean, and it's just like, I see a lot of couples and it's it's like, I, I don't advertise for couples. I never, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not super passionate about couples, but it's like usually couples I rarely see the family. It's really sad because, like, that's my passion. That's what gets me excited. That's where I get yeah. my energy from is doing family therapy. And all I see now is couples and individuals. Hmm. I do see a lot of parents, though. So a lot of parents are bringing in their teens, which well, is I mean, great. It, it would make sense that what you're good at, you would get referrals for. Yeah, but it's yeah, yeah. I mean, or you think that you just convert them over to it's like, just like therapy why, why, and family you know, therapy? Like, why go to the guy who <laughs> yep. doesn't talk about couples at all? But I, I guess I'm okay at it now. I don't feel like it's my sweet spot, but I'm all okay. right. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, so with couples, even with couples, you start talking about the family system, mm-hmm. um, which is very interesting. So, uh, cause there's usually attachment wounds there from the family system. There's, there's norms that the fam, uh, the couple has learned, each individual has learned and they've carried it in with them to their, uh, significant relationship. Pesky unwritten rules. How are the pesky unwritten? <sighs> mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. So, I mean, you know, if you're, if you're interested in FFT, functional family therapy or, or something like that, you know, it blends a lot of different ideas like social learning theory, um, family systems, um, a couple of other things, but you know, I, I guess for me, I, I, I'm a, I am a bit eclectic, even though I, I hold myself pretty, pretty closely to FFT and that's part of the nature of FFT because it is a business, it's got a lot of quality and assurance. So it, it really reinforces you doing the model and it's an evidence-based model. So when you do these interventions, you get this outcome, right? And it doesn't really allow for a lot of eclecticism. So, you know, me not doing FFT in the court system, I'd still practice FFT, but now I can be more eclectic because I really do like narrative therapy. I'm a, I'm a big fan of narrative. I'm a big fan of EFT, emotion-focused therapy. I just took the Gottman Level 1 training, so I like Gottman a lot. Um, internal family system. So I'm, I'm blending a lot of things together. Not like it's so scattered and so tangential that it's, it's 
diffusing the effectiveness of what I do, but... But like a synergy, because like you're talking yeah. about a family system, there's all these personalities all, you know, right. conjoining together. Well, I, always, I always thought of it like a toolbox. It's like, well, how, it's many, how many tools do we need? It's like, well, probably right. a couple, right? You know, and, and it yeah. wouldn't be bad to have more. We might find there are tools we just never use. Sure. And that might just be the environment that we're in or, or who knows what, you know? Yeah. But, but, and we do have the tool that we prefer. Right. Um, but it, it by no means would we want that to remain our only tool. Yeah. Right. I think when I've talked with students about picking a specialty or, or picking it, when students ask me, you know, which theory should I pick? You know, I talk in terms of, so you're going to want to match between theory, client personality, client problem, your personality, your comfort level, and like your training and like all of those factors, they, all that does line up quite often, yeah, but, yeah. but that, that will lend, I mean, that's why people will lend and, themselves and to I, I, may, I may have my own personal theories or beliefs about like, if you've been doing therapy for 30 years, you're probably mixing in some of the philosophy of DBT. You're probably oh, mixing in some of the philosophy yeah. of say psychodynamic. You're probably mixing in a lot of the best stuff and not because you may have studied it, but because it, it it's common sense once learned and experience gets you there, even if you don't learn it that's, yeah. i mean that's just a theory like if you're it, good enough in practice long enough you'll eventually stumble upon some of these tricks yeah. anyway I, I worked at a dbt you know institute uh not the dbt institute but an institute that taught dbt long before it was common and i had therapists you know that were coming like what are your secrets share your secrets with me and it was like therapists that have been doing it for 30 years i'm like well <laughs> it's gonna sound <laughs> little bit common sense to you you know maybe not to everybody but to you it's gonna sound like common sense i feel like you know we're all gonna be eclectic if we're allowed to be you know i do think there's a danger with that though because the the beauty and the benefit Mm -hmm. of doing fft for so long and doing trainings and having quality assurance and consultation and reading the books and the training manuals um i thought it was fantastic and helpful to really tie myself to one theory mm-hmm. and to really practice it like understand the spirit of it the thinking of it the the interventions yeah okay, so you i i would not recommend for students don't start with eclecticism <laughs> that's fair do not start with that you will that's your ending point but you start with one model and you really learn that model mm-hmm. you get the model you become that model so i started with cbt right. and i became cbt and we also talked about in the beginning of how the first therapy that you learn maybe has a deep impact on like who you are even 10, 20 years later. Um, you know, that foundational experience. Yeah. Um, and, and you don't want that to be messy. Starting right. off eclectic is like, is like saying, I'm gonna, I'm, I know nothing about woodworking, but I'm just going to take the whole toolbox and start going. Like, you know, like, it's like, no, right. Let's, let's start with one tool. Right. That seems fair. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, let's, yeah. let's learn one thing really well. Right. And so we have so we have something to fall back on. Yes. And and then you know? from that little island, <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. then go outward yep. and learn more and like pick it. up more. I like it a lot. Um yeah, cuz mm-hmm. they're uh that can that can be that can be dangerous. And I mean, if you look at common factors research, mm-hmm. you know, you faithfully practicing the model, a model of therapy is about 1% of client change. Mm. But I think it's nonetheless important because you what also impacts client change is the therapist's confidence in delivering a model right. and in working with the client. You know, obviously the biggest factor is the relationship, the, the rapport. Mm-hmm. But from that, it's you know uh, the model that makes the difference and the the clinician's confidence and ability in delivering the model. 
and that relationship <clears throat> and that relationship having so much power comes out of the relationship having a degree of health which means the therapist has a degree of health and no uh, oh, okay. No. <laughs> Negotiable. But, no. Uh, no. <laughs> but, the, but the thing about you these models... You don't meet your needs from your clients? Oh. For friendship and <laughs> intimacy? Don't, don't tell. You don't uh, do that? But the oh, thing shit. about these models, especially the good ones, is that they work. They, ha they have a lot of benefit. And so, you know, I study CBT, I become CBT. I study ACT, I become ACT. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I change. I become a healthier, more reflective, more self-aware person from being in these models, learning these disciplines, and... and as I, I undergo my... You should my still go to your own therapy, though. I should still go to my own therapy, absolutely. <laughs> it doesn't uh, substitute. For sure. But but the more that I, I benefit and I change and I grow from these yeah. very tools, then right. Right. I get to be that healthy relationship, whether or not I specifically... <laughs> I had I had something the other day. I was at home and I had a conflict, something that I, I needed to resolve. And I said, well, what would I tell what would I tell my clients? I just walked myself through it. It worked perfectly. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and see, yeah. that's why I haven't gone to therapy. Cause, no, like, I'm don't like, say that. Don't I know, say that. I know I need to. Yeah. But, but then that's been the challenge is like, well, if I go to therapy, what would I ask? Because like, I want to go. But I'm like, but I know all the tricks. Oh, man. I was in therapy like not but six months ago. And I'm not ashamed of that because it's like, no, we should be quick to go to therapy. Mm, really yeah, should. better man uh, than I am. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, me and Josh were I'll talking find therapist. before I know a couple. How you should probably get therapy, so no. I, yeah, I no. definitely should. It's a concern, you know. Well, wait, what if we all? Did? This might be an intervention. Know. It's really not about my book or me, right? Because the podcast—it's all about me. Everything's just all about me. Yeah, exactly. I know it's good. It's a good experience. <laughs> now, I mean, a lot of weirdos can be attracted to the counseling profession. Well, so but why are they attracted to the counseling? I want a master's degree that pays. Yeah. What, like, what yeah. wants to do that? Like, well, the, the, those are those are those are uh, what's the term? It, it rules people out. You know, it pushes. It, it's not but, attractive. But, but why are they attracted to it? And I'm it's suspect at best. Well, the thing I like about Western is that it, it makes you take. They make you take the MMPI. Yep. And there's another psychological inventory they make you take. I forget. Yeah. That's what we had. It rules out a lot of people. Yeah. We have and to take the Taylor Johnson. That's yeah, right. Taylor yeah. Johnson. Yeah. yeah. Taylor Johnson and the uh, MMPI. Well, in Western, they're required to go through counseling as well. Just like Yeah, you got to do 20 is. hours of individual and yep. you got to do 10 of, uh, of group. That's yep. a good practice. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, everybody needs work. Yeah. Even if you're, if you're going to be a clinician, you need work. But there, there can be some weirdos that are attracted to the counseling field. Absolutely. It's just like how, uh, you know, there's a higher, there's a higher, uh, percentage of narcissists in the pastorate. I knew you were going to go there. Than, totally called it. <laughs> than in the general population. Yeah. So yeah. The profession strange, attracts yeah. a certain type it of does. person. And, and therapists have their reasons, uh, that are not completely altruistic or consciously known. Right. Yep. So, so again, Reese, uh, I mean, We've called the counselor. We've set the appointment up. <laughs> yep. He's going to meet with you tomorrow. And <laughs> <laughs> He's actually kind of nervous. <laughs> uh, no. no, it's good. And the therapist is me. And, no. <laughs> uh, right, and I'll pay you afterwards. So, yes, it's good. I'm really excited about this. Um, I'm really excited to learn more about functional family theory because um, I have not learned a lot about it. And I think I had a similar story. Well, I know I had a similar experience of Initially thinking, I think I want to work with youth, and okay, I'll work with the parents and family. And then, I, and then I got to my marriage and family class in school and did the role plays, and they were like the most stressful, most yeah. awful experience I'd ever had. And I thought, no way, I'm not doing families. I don't even like couples. Right. So, so that was that. 
And then I got into addictions, which has been a lot of fun. But then the deeper I get into addictions, I'm realizing, oh, wait, addictions means, A, talking about trauma, which is great, and also talking about body work and somatic care, which is also great. But then I'm also learning, because I, I work with sex porn addiction, too, and there's a high, high family component to that. Yes. You know, you know the, the actions of the addicted person, you know, much more vividly impact uh, a betrayed partner than in, in a chemical addiction yeah. and, and kids and other other family members and so i've essentially found myself needing to learn how to work with families to yeah. a little bit to my chagrin but at this point also it's really exciting oh good i'm glad you're excited yeah, yeah. i mean you can't do addiction work without talking about current family context or family of origin um i before i did fft uh, and i was just going through graduate school I worked at uh, Lifeline Connections in Vancouver, uh, yeah. mm-hmm. and so I was just milieu staff. But that was probably the most eye-opening, informative education yeah. I've got doing that for two years and getting to know the clients coming through. And it was a 60-bed unit, 30-day stay, detox, then adults um, doing the treatment. And I mean going to work with people who are living there addicts who are living there yep. and they get comfortable yep. right and they 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 don't smell nice and they're you know and they've got family coming in yep. or they're doing shenanigans you know with the staff or with other clients and so that was like wow what an education mm-hmm. i i saw true addict behavior and thinking and intervention just in its full face of it it really kind of takes the the kind of the shock out of like whatever you do next. You know what I mean? <laughs> I know I worked at Rosemont treatment centers for four ish years. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, okay, there's, there's no more shock left. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we've spent it all. Right. Yep. <laughs> right. I left four years at community mental health. Uh-huh. And I thought, I don't think I could be scared by much. Right. No. Which has Yeah, I think like there's actually true. like times in my life where it's like I think I think it was something like the other day where it's like something got my heart pounding. There was something like adrenalized for some reason and I was like, This is an, this has been a while. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Back in the saddle. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah also the, also the feeling when I realized, oh wait, I need to do case management. What? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So family systems, great stuff. And families in crisis, uh-huh. uh, they sound like they're wonderful and amazing to work with and also in need of resources. And you've got this book, the Family Crisis Guidebook. Yep. Um, if in- folks are interested in picking up a copy, where can they find it? Well, they can go to Amazon and it's available in paperback and Kindle. And in the next few days, we'll come out in Audible. So you Excellent. can, you can That's get... That's probably where I'll listen to it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can get it on... on th- all three different uh, platform uh, formats. And then you can also visit my website, counselordan.com. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot of updates and then you can also check out my web uh, publisher's website, longformpublishing.com, And that's got all my books on it. Updates about uh, new writing projects I'm working on. Cause I've got a couple of new writing projects I'm, I'm on. Um, but yeah, that I'm, I'm very excited about that, that book. I really, I really think it's fantastic. I just had His Heart Foundation the other day yeah. uh, promoting the book on their website Excellent. or yeah. on Facebook. So, And then you can also check me out on uh, Facebook. I'm pretty active on Facebook. Okay, I think I'm on Facebook as at the mental health guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on Instagram, I'm the counselor and I'm also the mental health guy. So. All right. And... Um, maybe what's the last word you might say to, to students or to practitioners who are on oh. the fence about family, family, working with families? Uh, why, why is the reason they should pursue working with families a little well, bit? Well, 
If you're a practitioner, uh, number one, this is a great resource for your clients. So pick up a bunch of copies and just give it out to your clients. Um, I would recommend that. Um, I would also say, you know, kind of on my my point uh, a little bit ago, where I was talking about how we approach clients and their problems from a very individualistic focus uh, to the neglect of the relational dynamic of, of who a individual is. And I think that's unfortunate because your relationships, your family, your, you know, your friends, your social network, uh, those deeply intricately impact your mental health. Um, and if there's problems in that domain, it's going to hurt your mental health. So let's not neglect, um, people's relationships and also, I mean, too often you hear these horror stories about therapy when someone's considering doing something that's violates a relational norm or a relational ethic. And the therapist responds, well, well, you've got to do what's right for you. It's like, what, what, what about what's right for their commitments, for their relationships? What, what about what's right for their community? Um, if, why are we, why are we pushing this? Uh, and there's, I'm sure you guys read the book. I can't think of the title, but it, it talked about how counselors are the social priesthood and, uh, the cultural priesthood. Mm-hmm. And we are promoting this, you know, evangelizing this idea of individualism. And, uh, to me, I think we need a healthy antidote corrective yeah. to that of a relational lens and focus for individuals, for people accessing mental health services so that they right. can foster healthier families, marriages, and communities right. and not just well, I, do I, I don't right know that, that therapy in my mind is so much about like fostering individualism as much as it can be about fostering individual responsibility, oh, which, <laughs> which is different. <laughs> that, 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 you're exercising individual mm-hmm. responsibility in the context of what? A family, yeah. a relationship, <laughs> a parenting relationship, yeah. a community relationship uh, mm-hmm. as yeah. co-worker that's where you're exercising personal responsibility Absolutely. not well, just people people get really like shocked and and it's yeah. strange how oftentimes people will crave being told to have personal responsibility like right they light up and get excited <laughs> how can that be possible right. <laughs> no it's but like people thrive on it yeah and and kind of like sometimes mm-hmm. in counseling yeah the bolder i can be or the more blunt i can be the mm-hmm. more appreciative people are challenging them to take, oh, yeah. take control of their life and, and I, make order there. I've had clients yeah. who say, you know, I, I wasn't going to show up, but then, you know, that session where you just like, didn't give me, didn't sell me on any of the, the pop psychology or the, the BS stuff. Mm-hmm. And you were just kind of real or raw with me. Uh, that's what kept them going. Mm-hmm. And so to me, I'm, I, I get really passionate about that. I mean, I don't think counseling should be a quote unquote safe space. There's nothing safe about counseling. Now I'm going to be a partner with you and a collaborator with you, but there's nothing safe <laughs> do, do, about coming into counseling. Because do, 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 do you know my philosophy is? What that? is your philosophy? I say, well, with consent, no, you don't always get it, but with consent, I can be as intense in therapy uh, so long as you don't lose life, limb, or eyesight, uh, spouse, <laughs> is, or life. This is in your PDS? <laughs> or no, spouse, uh, or, or, um, or job, sorry. There's so a job, spouse, yeah. or life, limb, or eyesight. But I mean, it speaks <laughs> to that idea of being subversive, right? Like, yeah. uh, you know, health uh, comes at the cost of something. It hurts. Yeah. And and it, I'm, not, I'm not sadistic. Mm-hmm. You know, no. I don't enjoy seeing a client suffer. Mm-hmm. 
what I enjoy is seeing them grow and change, but right. that comes sometimes with pain. Right. There's a movement of people who are, are also shifting away from calling it a safe space and think, using the term brave space. Uh, brave yeah, space. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, this is Brené Brown. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, Sounds very Brené Brown. Actually, uh, Kate yeah. Kaufman, she's a okay. local practitioner also. But, brave uh, space. Yeah, okay. but it's this yeah. idea of here's a space where we kind of safely, but we take risks and yes. we encounter things and yeah. we face our fears and we get uncomfortable because it. that's what we well, need. And we're I love working it. With, with certain spectrums of trauma, you know, it almost takes me back to working at the, the military you know working cleaning deep wounds you know yeah like literally right. you know <laughs> right cleaning actual wounds um like that's how it can be experienced in in short durations right um and and again like you you talked about in the beginning of the podcast building a lot of rapport yeah you're spending it during those moments you have to have it built up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. But don't yeah. hoard it. Don't hoard it. No, don't no, no. Don't hoard no. it and say, uh, You're oh, building it to this. spend it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And spend it on something that's worth it. You yeah. know, like challenging your client to to, to overcome that that mm-hmm. that thing. So, I, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I like that brave space. I'm going to steal yeah, that. It. Yeah, we're all I like it. that idea too, Josh, of uh, spending rapport. I, I hadn't... Oh, I actually have a whole talk way. on that we should have because I don't think of rapport as being the only resource that we spend. Okay. We spend their money too. With, if any resource, there's like 15 or 20. If any one resource runs out, therapy ends. Okay. It's your responsibility to manage all the resources. Okay. Well, and, then. And, and it's collaboratively with them. I want to hear more about this. I, yeah. do, I do too. I want to do that. We'll, uh, we'll do another episode mm-hmm. on that. Um, but yes, mm-hmm. resources, family, and counseling that's all about relationship and systems so yes thank you dan for being here and for sharing your book and sharing your resources and may your family be very well and yeah (laughs) thank you thanks for having me guys anytime absolutely thank you listener for following us we'll be back with more smart counsel next time we love your feedback so let's keep the conversation going follow smart counsel on facebook at at smart counsel podcast on twitter at, at smartcouncil601. And you can email your questions to smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Nate Botsford. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore.